0: Thank you. Book a Tampa Bay Times podcast on Florida education issues. I'm reporter Jeff Solichak, and this week we'll be focusing on early education issues. Back in 2002, Florida voters imposed on the state a pre-kindergarten program saying that the legislature hadn't done it and children at the youngest ages needed to be prepared for when they get into school. And Ever since then, the state has been on a trajectory towards improving its early education programs. Or has it? The question has arisen in the legislature this year as to whether the programs in place are doing the job needed to get children prepared for kindergarten and beyond. Today, we'll be talking with Pinellas County Early Learning Coalition Executive Director Lindsay Carson about these issues. She recently testified before the House Education Committee, and she's agreed to talk with us about what's going on in Florida Early Education. Let's take a listen. So, Lindsay, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on my podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, the other day I saw you on my TV on the Florida Channel, and you were standing or sitting in front of the House Education Committee talking about early education, which they said is a critical component and an issue that we will be focusing on a lot this coming year. So, Why should we be focusing on early education? What's so important about it?
1: Well, to start with, 90% of the brain is developed before a child ever enters into kindergarten. For years, we thought about early education as as babysitting. And we know now that it's so much more. The foundations um, for future education are all built in those early years. And we need to make sure that our children have a good experience that's going to spark curiosity, that's going to develop those foundational skills, um, develop their language, so that they can be successful successful in kindergarten and beyond.
0: Now, when you're talking about getting ready, are you talking about the things that it seemed like the lawmakers were talking about, getting ready to take a test?
1: Well, it's a little more than that. So, yes, and um, yes, the, the kindergarten readiness screener looks at some basic um, literacy skills, numeracy skills, um, some basic letters and numbers, and we do know that those are predictors of future academic success. So they're important. Um, but when we think about kindergarten readiness, we know that it actually goes a little bit beyond that, or quite a bit um, beyond that. The social and emotional development is another critical part of early childhood development. In fact, um, you know, you have to have that strong social-emotional development in order for all those other pieces to come together. One of the things that we know is that the executive functioning skills or things like um, persistence in a task in the face of a challenge and resilience and um, the ability to cooperate and work together, those are skills that are developed in those early years um, that, you know, we want our employees to have now in our workforce, (laughs) you know. And so, in those early years, that's what they're doing. When they play, um, and, and the play-based curriculum is an appropriate curriculum in early childhood. That is the work of young children, and that is how they learn. But those are things that they're developing there. So when we think about kindergarten readiness, yes, literacy and math are, are really important, and we certainly look at those, but we know that it's,
0: it's more than that. Do they really sit down as four- and five-year-olds in front of a computer with a mouse and take an actual test the way that I think of it?
1: Um. Some take it on a computer, and some take it with a, like an iPad or a, a tablet of sorts. Those are done during the first thirty days of kindergarten. Um, so, yep, yeah, it's an intuitive assessment called Star Early Literacy, and what it does is it asks a series of questions, and based on the answers of those questions, they're able to um, the the questions adjust and will either advance or um, or adjust based on the child's responses and ability levels to then generate a score. Um, but yes, it is an online assessment that is done.
0: That seems like it would be not appropriate for a kid that little who probably wants to, like you said, play.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is certainly debatable. Um, the, the children who are taking those assessments, realistically, if you, if, you, if you go to any restaurant, if you go to any grocery store, the children are, in fact, already on, in many cases, on those devices using them in different ways and for different purposes. Um, so it's not surprising um, that they are doing that. Now before a child takes the, the test, they are given essentially a screener that says whether or not they have the technical proficiency. You know, can they manage the mouse, can they manage the tablet to make sure before those scores are included in terms of um, the readiness rates that are assigned to the providers that um, that are impacted by it. But that's that's what it is. We do encourage we, you know, providers and, and parents to limit screen time in those early years because those personal interactions and those hands-on experiences are so critical to their development. Um, anything that has a screen is going to be two-dimensional, and so it's, it requires more abstract thinking as opposed to hands-on. You know, Building blocks on a screen using a mouse is different than building blocks with your hands. So you want to be able to touch and feel things, and so it is a little bit different. It's not ideal, um, but it does give us some really good data that has been linked to child outcomes that we can use to see whether or not we're uh, getting kids where they need to be and how we can improve to provide better services to children. So, you know, there's there's accountability
0: everywhere. And and I guess that data is what has driven some of the legislators to to act. The governor pointed out that we were right around half of the students entering kindergarten who were not ready and he didn't think that was acceptable. And now they're looking at ways to improve. Is that basically the crux of where we are
1: it is um you know the the truth is in florida we have a constitutional amendment that every child has the opportunity to attend a high quality early learning experience that prepares them for kindergarten and the fact is too many kids are not ready and you know i think you know people can debate the data all day long but what the data tells is too many kids are not ready and we could do more to get them prepared and my energy and my effort is focused on how we can support our providers and our families in preparing our children for kindergarten. Are we are
0: we talking about a situation where children are actually not ready, or are we actually talking about you know where the schools are not getting them ready? And what can we do for the differences? Because sometimes kids just come with different sets of abilities, knowledge, backgrounds, and sometimes the schools just do nothing for them.
1: I think it's all of the above. Um, first, of course, you know, young children, you're only you're talking about the first five years of life. So they haven't had a really long time. And the difference between a child who turned five on August 30th and the child who turned five on September 2nd, the year before, is almost a year. Like, that's a pretty, pretty, pretty significant difference in their development. So we know that there's going to be a range. We also know that children with unique abilities And other challenges may struggle as well, English learners of other languages, um, and then those children who've had more limited experiences, which is where early learning can help to bridge that gap. The quality of early learning is a really critical piece to this conversation, though, because the VPK program has, you know, some quality standards that are in it, but we still have room for improvement to strengthen those programs. And when the providers are uh, not meeting the criteria, it takes a long time to get To get to a point where either they are up to, up to par or are no longer offering the program. The VPK program is free. It's typically run about three hours a day. So the VPK, you know, in many cases would run from say nine to twelve. If a parent needs a full time, a full day of care, which most do, then they may need care say starting at eight o'clock and they're going to pick the child up at five thirty. And so parents have to pay for the remaining portion of that day. So while the VPK program is free and available to all children, parents still are paying for that, what we refer to as wrap care, to make it a full day. The quality of the program oftentimes, because money, you know, quality costs money, uh, the quality of the program that children attend is oftentimes dictated by what parents can afford for that around care. And if you've got a child who cannot afford wraparound care, there are some programs, like the School Readiness Program, um, which provides child care subsidies for some of those children. There are still others who just simply don't get the wraparound care and therefore can't participate in the program at all. So we have a challenge with the quality of the program and the ability to, you know, the success rate of the program for the children who do participate. And we also have a problem where some children, particularly low-income children, that are not accessing the program at all.
0: Now did I not hear someone I think it was one of the directors from the state say that the funding has been stagnant and maybe since the beginning of the program nearly two decades ago is on a per student basis. Is that correct? And if, if so, how much more is needed in order to do this quality job that is is desired?
1: Yes, actually that was
0: me. Oh um, there you and go. So in- In 2005, right when
1: I started at the coalition, my first assignment was to launch BPK, and they made providers got $2,500 per student for the year. So that works out to, you know, 540 hours, um, which is the program length. They got $2,500 per year. And then in the coming years, it went up, and I want to say hit somewhere in the neighborhood of $2,750, maybe $2,800 per student, something like that. Um, And then the recession hit, and then there were cuts and then it got reduced. We are now at $2437 per student. So in 2005 we were at 2500 and we are now at $2047. I'm sorry, $2437 per student. Also in that time, minimum wage has gone up by 30%. Which is a pretty steep increase. And our providers are still trying to do the same work. Their costs, their fixed costs have gone up, you know, what it costs to pay their staff, what it costs for their, you know, properties and power and food and everything else. All of those, those expenses have gone up. And yet their funding has gone down by about two and a half percent.
0: So where does that leave us? I mean, if they're not able to provide what they need to do, are they closing or are they consolidating? Are they perhaps only taking paying customers, so to speak?
1: Well, um, yes, some are closing. Some are saying, like, "We know we just can't afford to do this business anymore. It's, it's, not, it's not profitable. It's not, it's not sustainable um, in some cases." So we are seeing some of that. Um, others are just, you know, the more and more of the burden falls on the families uh, that are having to pay for the wrap care because that's where they are essentially making up the difference. And so, it is harder for families to find providers that are uh, giving care for just the, the three hours. While well, certainly it's an option, they can still prioritize to, to pull in those full day um, children. So it can be more difficult. Um, so yeah, we're, we are we are seeing a reduction now. The school districts have stepped up and they are offering a great deal of care, which is, has really helped the um, the situation. Um, but more and more providers are starting to leave the industry and, and, and starting to, to phase out because they can't, they can't it's not it's not sustainable. Essentially we have market failure. What it costs to provide the level of quality that we would need to see, private pay parents just simply can't afford. You know, it's it, the, re- the ratio of what you pay or I'm sorry, the ratio of classrooms in early learning is lower than it is in the public school system. It's lower than the K-12 world as they're younger kids, you know, and in an in infant room for example, you can only have you know, in Pinellas County, it's one um, one adult to three children. So it's more expensive to operate those that level of care. Now, the credentials of the teachers are not quite the same, so there's a, a difference there, too. But our preschool teachers are making, on average, half of what a public school teacher makes. And yet parents are broke. It's, it's very expensive for them to, to maintain it without enough subsidy.
0: So what recommendations do you have? I mean, these lawmakers are trying to fix something, it sounds like, but how do they actually fix this?
1: Well, first, it was phenomenal that they did have the Education Committee dedicated to early learning. Uh, The fact that it's gotten um, the attention and the uh, recognition, you know, in terms of the importance of that time as it relates to our, our young children's education here in Florida is phenomenal, and I'm really pleased that our legislators have really stepped up to take this cause on. And it's not an easy one, but they're on board and they're looking at making changes. So initially I would say, first, we've got to increase the overall base in terms of how much we're paying per student in order to be able to make sure that we're providing that, the appropriate quality. But we also need to look at the quality standards. Uh, it's not just a matter of money. We need to be looking at the training that the teachers are getting, the curriculums uh, that they are using, making sure that we have the appropriate ratios and developmental screenings built in. And, you know, certainly those things cost. Our providers, to be clear, they want to provide highest quality they can for our children. They want every child to be successful, but they're working with very limited resources. And so we can support them with additional resources as a base, but we can also build in program assessment and incentives for providers that are operating at a higher level and performing um, with greater effectiveness. When we look at teacher-child interactions, we have that in our school readiness program so that there are rate differentials based on the performance of the program. And that helps us to support and sustain a higher level of quality in those programs and rewards those providers that are doing it successfully. And that would allow us to, I think, better serve those children, adding those quality standards, increasing the investment, and providing incentives for the providers to achieve those.
0: Now, at the same time, though, I remember hearing Shan Goff, the director of early learning for the state, say something to the effect of, we can't get some of these low providers off of our lists that they've been there for years and that there's been no teeth. Is there something that has to be done on that side too, to find the ones that some of the descriptions that were offered of the, the teachers who don't talk except in mean ways to children and things like that, that they were disturbing. And how do you get rid of those schools or at least not have them be part of the system that is the state quality assurance system? (laughs)
1: And we're really that's we're talking about two different things, but I'm really glad that you brought that up because you know we would like to see those things converge. So first, in terms of the accountability, right now it is based purely on the readiness rates. Those are the rates that are attached to the provider based upon the performance of the children they served after they get to kindergarten. So that assessment that's done during the first 30 days is uh, done by the kindergarten teacher. The data, the the scores of those children, are then linked back up to the preschool program they attended, and based on the success of their students um, that attended 70% or more of their program, the provider is given a number. They're given a rating. And that readiness rate, there should be a cutoff score that says you are providing adequate care or you're going on probation. If you don't step up and provide better care, you're going to um, be removed from the VPK program for five years. The assessments that have been done over the years, and I believe you've even reported on it in the past, have evolved quite a bit. So at one point there was a FAIR – it was called FAIR Mm -hmm. um, assessment, and the governor suspended it because of technology glitches. So then there was no assessment done. Then they did a different assessment, but the data was not conclusive, so then there was no assessment done effectively. Then they came out with a new assessment tool, um, but – the The current assessment, Starly Literacy, was a major shift in terms of um, where those those providers were performing. And so they were they didn't make it punitive the first year. So it was an information point; it was a data point. But there was no real um, there was nothing punitive about it. So the the providers that are on probation, those providers are because they were on probation way back in like 2013 or something. That they've been on probation this whole time. And unless they come up with a score where it puts them over the threshold, then they can remove themselves off. Otherwise, they've just been kind of stuck during a holding pattern. But no new additional providers, regardless of their score, have been placed on probation. And that's where she's saying it's taking it takes a very long time. Once they're actually on probation, they can remain on probation for, I believe it's three years. But the problem is we don't get the data. So part of this is a timing issue. And in fairness to the providers, we don't get the readiness data, we got it last May, for the kids who started that fall. So if providers need to make the course correct, if they need to make some changes in their programs, but they don't get the data until after the next round of kids has already gone through, then it's not really, re- I mean, it's not very helpful for them to be able to make the necessary improvements, for us to be able to provide the necessary supports, trainings, you know, coaching to help providers get on the right track if the data is a year old, because another round of kids has already gone through. So we've got to be more timely in how they get that data and those reports so that we can then use it more effectively to drive instruction and improve quality. Otherwise, it's just a a waiting game and then they leave.
0: It sounds like a lot of the other accountability systems where information comes in late and then people are trying to scramble to make things happen.
1: So you mentioned the class assessments, which is where we look at teacher-child interaction and where some of those lower performing providers are really negative to children or, you know, not providing the good kind of environment that any one of us would want for our, for our child. And that is um, a program assessment that is used right now in the school readiness program, but doesn't apply to VPK. So in the school readiness program, We do these class assessments looking at the teacher-child interaction, there's a cutoff score. If they don't meet that cutoff score, then they immediately lose their school readiness contract. There's another threshold that they would go on corrective action with a quality improvement plan, and then we would provide training and coaching and support to help those providers get to the level of quality that we uh, would like to see for a provider who's, who's taking taxpayer dollars and having that level of accountability there. Um, So there's the cutoff, there's the quality improvement plan, and then for those providers who are actually doing well, there's that payment differential or incentive rate that they get um, so that they can earn more money to help sustain that quality and reward that quality, creating good opportunities for our low-income children. We could and and we would like to see uh, taking that same assessment tool and bring it into our VPK programs and build that into the accountability process with the VPK providers. Because it's, it's not just about letters and numbers. You know, like we said, the, the social, emotional, that um, executive functioning, all of those other skills that are so important that lead to, to academic success and the, and the child's ability as they go in and ultimately are the foundation of which we on which we build the literacy and the math um, in those skills. And so creating that environment with positive emotional support, instructional support, facilitating the learning process in a positive way. That encourages children and sparks them, sparks their curiosity and and sparks their love of learning, and ability to persist as they are moving through those tasks and scaffolding to take them to the next level. You know, if they if they need to know, you don't want to stop at ten letters, right? You want to continually challenge them to move on, and so that's part of what we look at uh, with those assessments. And setting setting taking that same assessment and setting some cutoff scores in the VPK program, I think would be very
0: appropriate. It sounds like. Lots of the answers are already out there and available. And it's just a matter of the will by somebody to make the decision to let those things happen or to be able to afford to let those things happen.
1: It is. We have come a long way. Since 2005, when we started uh, the VPK program, we really have. We've had some great champions um, in the legislature. We've had great support uh, from members of our delegation here locally as well. And so we've had some great champions, and and we do have to celebrate the successes that we've had. But we also know we have so much further to go. Right now, we have an opportunity, and fortunately, we have an audience, and it seems that we have a, a legislature that is ripe and interested in looking at uh, beginning to tackle this issue. It's a really difficult one, because in, in the K-12 system, you know, every kid has to go to school. They, they may be homeschooled, they may go to private school, but every kid has to go to some kind of school. But in early learning, they don't. There's nothing that says you have to participate. And, and certainly, we don't want to take anything away from parents who are the child's first teacher, but... It is a more complex way of how we tackle this early education piece because it comes in so many different forms and in so many different ways
0: well i really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me this is super interesting and i hope maybe as we get through the session and we see what they do you'll come back and let us know what you think of how they ended up
1: i'm encouraged going into this session i continue to be hopeful this is kind of my sports season So I will absolutely uh, look forward to recapping with you and and keeping you posted as things develop throughout session. Um, But it's an exciting time. I think we're making progress and I think we're in a good position to do that.
0: That's the end of our interview and the end of our podcast. If you would like to participate in this conversation, go to where our post is of this podcast on our Facebook page, Tampa Bay Times Gradebook. You can always follow the latest in Florida education breaking news on our blog, The Gradebook, www.tampabay.com gradebook. Please share this podcast with your friends, rate it on any of the systems where you find your podcasts, including Google and Apple, and feel free to send us any sort of information you'd like to hear more about, or maybe even something you would like to hear less about. I'm reporter Jeff Solichek. Thanks so much for listening.